We might call tonight early tonight. We'll see. It's your chance to get all your last questions in, though, so we'll, be, we'll have a relaxed uh, time for you to be able to do that here. Well, let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful today for your grace, for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for this occasion we've had to uh, analyze and examine the, uh, the, the, the things to come. And uh, Lord, I ask that uh, these would not uh, be as they sometimes seem to be, just sort of uh, whimsical ideas that are just out there and uh, seem less than real. Uh, but Lord, I ask that you would uh, cause us to be mindful, even as we uh, often are at the uh, passing of a loved one, of, of, the, of what's going to be uh, transpiring and what is transpiring even, uh, for, for those even now, Lord, I ask that we would uh, take heed uh, to this information and, and make sure that we are on the uh, right side of the judgments of which we are speaking uh, tonight and last week. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so last week we walked through the judgments, uh, chiefly the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and the great white throne judgment. Although uh, we said there were several other lesser judgments that are sort of patterned after those two uh, that uh, take place, uh, judgments for uh, uh, smaller groups that uh, aren't uh, at the uh, general uh, judgment, such as tribulation saints and millennial saints that make their way through the millennium in their, in their natural bodies. Um, also those who... Uh, uh, who uh, you know, it, now, there is a general judgment for unbelievers, but uh, also a judgment for angels as well seems to be in the same pattern. We don't get details on all of those judgments, but uh, uh, we do get a, a good sense of, of those two ideas, the positive judgment for those who are rightly related to God, judgment seat of Christ for believers, and a similar judgment apparently patterned after it, uh, that uh, is for Old Testament saints, millennial saints. Um, and uh, we talked about some of the judgments. What, what, did, what did we suggest that the uh, rewards looked like? Just sort of as a review. So not necessarily physical crowns, although it's a possibility, uh, but probably what? What's, what, are, what, is, what, what is the crown metaphor there for? Okay, so, so we're, we're crowned with life. So the crown of life, the idea here is that we are crowned with life. The crown of joy, that is we receive joy. Paul talks about uh, the, uh, the believers at the churches being his crown of joy. Uh, that is a, a source of joy for all eternity. Okay, uh, and so that would be a, a crown of joy, crown of life, and and probably the the other crowns are. We probably should not think of them as physical crowns, but that we are crowned with uh, various uh, benefits, uh, delights. Uh, perhaps we suggested that uh, uh, based on some of the parables we saw in the Gospels that perhaps. Uh, there would be uh, levels of authority. Uh, we uh, again, we suggested there. It's not. It's though we're just all flat in the eternal state or in the millennium, even uh, that there are echelons of power. There are nations. There are governors, um, and so perhaps 
uh, some of those rewards then are attached to the level of authority. Remember, the uh, one who was faithful in a, in a little amount was given authority over a city, right, in the, uh, in the, uh, in the parable. So perhaps that's what that looks like. Uh, the judgments for uh, unbelievers um, are, are uh, we'll probably spend a little bit more time on that tonight, really, uh, because uh, we, we talked about the nature of the judgment based on their works. We suggested that there were some who are more severely judged, but the nature of those judgments uh, does not become clear until we start talking about the place where they're going. Uh, so that's going to be the topic for uh, the second half of our time, or excuse me, the first half of our time tonight, and then we'll also talk briefly about the pleasures of heaven as well. So, Doctrine of the Eternal State, page 51 here, and we'll begin here with the eternal state of the damned. So what is the nature of their punishment? Well, it's eternal conscious torment. Eternal conscious torment. I start off by saying that there are a lot of folks, even in the evangelical community, who are so concerned that the love of God might be jeopardized by judgment that they suggest that hell is not a real place, uh, that it is, uh, that there is no place of eternal wrath. Yes? How can they say that when you have Jesus himself telling people? I'll explain that in a little bit, but, but raise, it, raise it later if, if we still haven't gotten there. Okay, so the result is that they either minimize either the degree of punishment or the duration of punishment so that it is not as severe, that perhaps there's an opportunity after a period of remediation uh, where they might be able to graduate. Uh, of course, that's, that's a long been part of the Roman Catholic tradition with purgatory, that after a period of a remediation, uh, you're able to graduate into a better place. Um, or perhaps the duration of the punishment. Uh, some suggest that uh, hell is it's a consuming fire and that the consumption takes place in a, in a, in a period of time and then you're annihilated. Okay? Uh, so there's four, I think, categories of people who try to minimize or eliminate the degree and duration of the punishment. First, we have what are sometimes called annihilationists, who argue that the impenitent, the damned, will simply cease to exist, perhaps after a brief period of suffering, uh, but they would simply cease to exist. Universalist exclusivists argue that all people will eventually come to Christ, uh, and uh, they, there are some who would suggest that, uh, you know, Wesley, for instance, uh, suggested that all persons, when they come to their, to their, their final moments, are given an opportunity to repent, and, and just about all, if not all, accept this. Um, and so the threat of punishment is out there, uh, but uh, most people avoid it, or perhaps all people avoid it, uh, by uh, making an 11th hour profession of faith and cry out to God. Or some actually suggest that you get a second chance in the afterlife. Okay, so after you're in the afterlife, you've, you've gotten there that God gives you a second chance 
to repent and most people having endured hell for a period of time are, are happy to take that chance. There are also universalist inclusivists, and perhaps I've just merged these, uh, suggest that all people are saved by casting themselves on the mercy of God by unconscious faith or universal election. Uh, Karl Barth was among these, uh, who suggested that all people uh, either deliberately and consciously call upon God, uh, they, or they... Uh, or they exercise unconscious faith. This has been a particularly popular idea for children, or perhaps infants, uh, who don't reach the stage of, 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 of conscious accountability, uh, that they are, you know, they, they never get past, you know, you know perhaps they die in the womb, or die at a few weeks, and they never really have an opportunity uh, to make some sort of an informed, conscious decision to embrace Jesus Christ, uh, that uh, there is an unconscious faith uh, that, is, that is true for all uh, children until they get to a certain age, sometimes called the age of accountability. And then others simply say that all people are saved in Christ, that the, the all passages uh, that says that Christ died for all, he died in the place of all, uh, means that they ultimately all will uh, respond in faith. And then there's pluralists uh, who suggest that provision for salvation is actually made in every religion and that God accepts expressions of faith of many sorts. Uh, so, for instance, uh, Greg Boyd uh, uh, is one who suggests uh, that there are... Uh, that there are those who, um, uh, who there's a wideness in God's mercy. Clark Pinnock actually actually wrote a book with that title, um, and uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, perhaps yes. So there's a wideness in God's mercy that extends beyond the Christian community and accepts the sincere expression of faith in other gods and in other religions as misplaced but sincere, and God accepts that at face value and transfers it. <laughs> well, of course, of course, there are a lot of the open theists, and this is a lot of the, the, a lot of the community that have migrated towards a universalist idea. Um, they're, they're so fixated on the love and mercy of God as, a, as his God's primary attribute, but they cannot countenance any sort of wrath that is eternal or as, as aggressive as we find described in Scripture. And so what we have here is, is, a, is a warning that everybody heeds, right? Uh, just, just like in, in Hebrews. Remember in Hebrews we have warnings that, you know, if, if you fall away, then you won't be able to be restored again, and that it's and and some some read those passages as 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 sort of warnings that everybody heeds. So nobody actually nobody actually you know falls away because of the warnings, and so so the warnings are there just to sort of keep people out of hell, uh, not to actually uh, to not actually to 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 have a, a credible threat. Okay. Okay, so those are, those are, those are some of the, uh, the approaches here. But as we see, none of these theories match the biblical data. 
as has been said. The duration of eternal punishment is eternal. It's called eternal fire, multiple times, eternal punishment, eternal destruction. Note that the meaning of this word is confirmed by its other uses. We find that God is eternal. Well, if God is eternal and fire is eternal, and fire eventually is extinguished, then so is God, right? Okay, because they're the same term. Okay, so if it's, if it's eternal fire and eternal punishment, and God is eternal, then they must have synonymous meanings here. Salvation is eternal. Life is eternal. Okay, so uh, if, if, damnation, if, if there's eternal damnation and eternal life, and the eternal damnation isn't really, then perhaps neither is eternal life. So if the fires of hell are not unending, then neither are these other things that we hold so dear. It lasts forever. The black darkness has been reserved forever. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, other matters extend forever. Our, our lives last forever. Christ is forever. God's word lasts forever. His throne is forever. In the words of Moses Stewart, we must either admit the endless misery of hell or give up the endless happiness of heaven. Okay, because they, they, they rise and fall together. So whatever, whatever can be said of the duration and, uh, and intensity of the one, we have to say of the other. Okay? So that's the duration. Now let's look at the nature. Okay? So again, these either minimize the duration or the nature of what happens here. But look, let's look then at the nature of the punishment as it's described. First, it's described as a place of darkness, black darkness, outer darkness. There's always that term here. Of course, darkness can be sort of metaphorical of doom and gloom. But it, it seems uh, that, that implied here is this total exclusion from fa the favor of God and total removal of all moral rectitude. So... It's, it's a totally black place. Probably also denotes literal darkness. And, of course, total darkness is rather terrifying. Uh, we, we, all, we probably all have little stories about you know, being in dark places that are totally dark, that you, you can't see anything. and it is, uh, It's very unnerving. So it probably is, that's part of it. Uh, but there probably is also this metaphorical idea of simply the darkness of the absence of all good, the absence of all divine favor. Okay. Note, it's not the, you know, I, I, it's it's not as though God is not there. You know, sometimes you know we we talk about the second death as removal from the presence of God. And I, I backed off a little bit from that designation because God is omnipresent. If I make my bed in hell, behold, he is there, right? Uh, so it, now obviously God is not there feeling the torments of hell. He's not being punished. Nonetheless, the fact that he is there overseeing it actually heightens the nature of that punishment because God is always there making sure, if I, if I may put it this way, that the fires are stoked, okay, 
uh, he, he, he is overseeing this. It's, it's not as though God is absent, but all that is good that comes from the hand of God uh, seems to have, the, 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 uh, it has been stopped. The tap has been stopped. It's a place of darkness. It's a place of extreme torment. There's torment, no rest. It includes fire and brimstone and unquenchable fire. Which leads to the question here. I, I, I've, I've made, it, made it very clear uh, that we uh, should think of hell as eternal, conscious, and literal. There are a number of folks over the years who have suggested uh, that, that uh, physical may not be a component here. Uh, some of these names you'll, you'll know of those who have doubts about the physical nature of hell. Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle put together a book just a couple of years ago that sort of raised eyebrows. Um, this view is also held by several very conservative writers, including your own textbook. Herman Hoyt, I think, uh, implied here that uh, uh, physical torment certainly was not the primary, uh, the, the, the primary vehicle of punishment here, um, and perhaps not one at all. D.A. Carson, Robert Peterson, J.A. Packer, Leon Morris, Charles Hodge, John Calvin, Martin Luther, all of these uh, suggested or at least expressed doubts about the physical nature of hell, and uh, you know, we've already sort of raised uh, the uh, the uh, the idea here last week that you know there seem to be bodies granted to the small and the small the dead, small and great who stand before God, um, but at the same time we were hesitant to call them glorified bodies. Uh, lest there be some confusion with the bodies that we have. So uh, what is the nature of the bodies that they receive? Uh, I think it, perhaps it goes without saying that if their bodies are exactly like ours, uh, they would be consumed by flames. And so the question is, are the bodies of the damned, do they have heightened properties so that they can burn uh, and yet not be consumed, like perhaps the burning bush in, in, in the Moses account. Well, let's look at here at some of the arguments that these raise. First, there's no biblical statement that the damned receive resurrection body. It's hard to imagine what they might be like. They're not glorified God bodies. They're not incorruptible bodies. Are they imperishable bodies? Uh, but those are the languages, those are the descriptors that are used of the resurrection body of believers, but they don't seem to fit really well uh, for uh, the bodies of unbelievers. Secondly, while the rich man in Hades spoke of physical body parts such as fingers and tongues and speaks of torments and patently physical language, it's at least probable that he had no body. Remember we talked about the intermediate state and suggested that there really is no uh, reason to think, other than this passage, uh, that, uh, that those who are in the intermediate state right now actually have bodies. Rather, uh, we suggested that Paul, in first, uh, second, uh, second Corinthians 5, uh, said that those who go are actually, for a time, in the state of being 
na having naked bodies, or naked souls. They're naked souls, not having bodies. And so we, we, we find here that the language used of the, meta of the, uh, of the intermediate state, uh, he's using terms. Uh, we talk about, you know, remember, we talk, sometimes talk about uh, um, God speaking of his own body parts in order for our understanding. Uh, they're sometimes called anthropomorphisms, right? You know, they, so God has an, an arm, God has a tongue, God's eyes rove to and fro throughout the earth. And yet, and yet, when we study the doctrine of God, he doesn't have eyes, he doesn't have an arm. He, so, so why is that language used? Well, it's, it's the kind of language that allows us to understand the kinds of things that God can do. He is, he is omnipotent, so he has a mighty arm. He knows and sees all, and so we talk about eyes, even though he doesn't have them, right? And so, and so, so, so there we, we, we have a pattern, at least, of body parts being assigned to spiritual beings in order to make sense of what they do and experience. Thirdly here, the sensate ideas of seeing and hearing are also anthropomorphic as well. In some inscrutable way, spiritual beings have sensory perception without sensory organs. Now, don't ask me to explain that. Uh, but angels who don't have bodies and God who does not have bodies is still able to see and hear and know even though he doesn't have sensory organs. So, uh, so, so it is possible then for experiences to be had that are some that we don't understand apart from sensory organs that are had by purely spiritual beings. And then finally, bodies normally burn up. Herman Hoyt concedes that the living unregenerate, those who survive the tribulation, the millennium, actually will be cast bodily into hell and will be incinerated, but their bodies will be consumed. And so what lasts forever are their souls rather than their bodies. So there's uh, four reasons that are sometimes given why uh, the uh, why the, uh, the the damned do not actually have bodies. I'm I'm personally uncomfortable with that. Okay, recognize that the, you know uh, I probably should throw this one in here too. Is that you know hell is prepared for Satan and his angels. That is whatever's happening in hell is suitable for angels and demons and Satan, even though they have no bodies. So they're able to be punished, certainly, in this place, even though they don't have a physical form. Okay, I do, I do tend to think that uh, this uh, dismissal of bodies smacks a bit of platonic thought, that's, you know, that uh, the physical is dispensable for humans, uh, where the spiritual is not. You have an immortal soul, but a mortal body. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure that follows based on the fact that believers have immortal bodies uh, in the eternal state. So I'm not sure that holds. Um, I will say this, I, 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 while I am not willing to give up on physical bodies of the damned, I will, I will concede that it is probably not as crucial to orthodoxy as the eternal conscious torment elements. Those three elements, I think, are absolutely non-negotiable. Uh, and, and, and while I am, 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 am very convinced that they will have bodies as well, uh, I don't know that that rises quite as high on the, uh, 
you, you've got to believe this to be orthodox uh, kind of uh, situation here. Uh, thoughts on that? I know that's a, it's a little unnerving kind of thinking. Yeah, but go ahead. When Hoyt came and confessed about the second death, mm -hmm. is that the only, if that's the point where he's saying the body's consumed? Yeah, that, well, yes and no. The, if they have bodies, they are burned up, and it's going to be very painful and horrific. But, well, it's part of the second death. But once, once those bodies are consumed, the soul lives on in torment. Okay? And, and I think... Because I, I think to me if, it sounds like he's talking about you die once here on earth, and then you die again at this point. Well, right. Well, that's part of it. But, it, but, it, but, it's a, but it's eternal. For Hoyt, it is eternal. The physical part is not eternal, but the torment is eternal. And, and I think it does, it does sort of alert us to the fact that the, the primary punishment of hell is not physical. I think it is part of it, but don't, don't imagine that it's limited to that. Okay? Because Satan and his angels suffer forever, and they don't have bodies. So what kind of torment do they have? Well, it's, it's some sort of a, a mental anguish, a psychological anguish of some sort, but there is absolute torment that is taking place even for those who do not have bodies. And so I think we can say safely that the primary punishment of hell is of, a, of an immaterial nature. Uh, I do think there is a material punishment, but I think the immaterial is probably the primary we should probably not think. I know we we tend to scare people with you know, "burn up forever" kind of kind of language, and and while that's true, I don't think that that's the primary threat that people should be thinking of. The threat is is the is the anger, and 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 displeasure of God that is that is eternally wielded against those individuals. Right. So, so there is sort of a torment there. Except, except that we've. Right. Except that we said with with him in the intermediate state, they don't have bodies. We we were pretty confident of that. Right. So, but they're still using that language. Right. So, it's hard. It's hard to explain the kinds of torments that will be there if if they are spiritual torments. And and psychological torments; those are those are actually hard to explain, yeah. and so it's easy to put them into physical kinds of terms. Yeah. Uh, back to page fifty-one at the start of the lesson. Mm -hmm. I, I taught back a few years ago. Matt Owen gave a lesson. I think it was in Midwood on a guy by the name of Rob Bell out in the Grand Rapids area that written the book Wind. Yeah. What kind of uh, uh, which one of the four was he? I think he was a universalist, but I, don't quote me on that. Okay. Wasn't it Tim Keller also that said there was no hell? That doesn't sound right, but but I mean I but I mean I. 
I'd be surprised to hear that from Tim Keller, but uh, but I. Well, they don't have bodies; their tongue is being burned forever. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, there's eternal conscious torment, though, and it will never end. Um, so and so, yeah. And that next point is consciousness. Their worm does not die. It's a phrase that's, you know, long been discussed. What does that mean? Their worm doesn't die. Um, seems to have reference to continued existence, consciousness, and pangs of conscience that linger forever. Um, I know some have suggested, okay, that there are, you know, there's worms associated with corpses that, uh, that they'll continue to feed and feed and feed and feed, and that's part of the, the, the you know, the shudderingly gross kinds of things that hell will feature. And that's possible. I, I think it's probably more the idea that it just never ends. And, 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 and you have to be a never-ending food supply. Right, right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we said last week that there were probably degrees of punishment in hell um, because the punishment that is meted out in Romans 2 and Re Revelation 2, is according to one's deeds. So it probably can be argued that there are some who have more wicked deeds than others. And it's also apparent that individuals with greater exposure to God's revelation are subject to more severe punishment as well, because it will be more tolerable for those in Tyre and Sidon than it will be for Capernaum in the judgment tend to think of Tyre and Sidon as some of the worst, uh, you know, Tyre and Sidon were the, uh, uh, the, uh, the place where the, uh, the, the, the Molech worship was at its peak. This is the center of the, uh, the, uh, the, the child sacrifices that went on there. Um, and it will, it'll be better for them than for those, you know, uh, work-a-day Jews who lived in Capernaum who <laughs> were exposed to the Messiah and yet rejected him. That was a worse thing to do. And so it will be better for the, those entire in Sidon than for these folks. So uh, perhaps we'll be surprised at uh, what uh, God uh, is, finds the most egregious of sins, but it does appear that there may be degrees of punishment in hell. But let's, let's, let's reply to some of these objections to eternal conscious torment. Some would suggest, and so the, the, the bold sections here are uh, the, uh, the objections, and then I give answers to them. First, it's, off, it's offered that it's unjust to punish forever sins that are committed in a few short years. So people live maximum 100 years. Uh, there's only so many sins you can commit in a hundred years. Is it necessary to punish them for trillions of years, effectively? Well, the assumption here is that the duration of punishment has to be determined based on the amount of time it took to commit the sin. But even human jurisprudence doesn't operate on this principle, right? Uh, you can shoot someone in a split second, and the punishment will be of a great duration. Because it's not the amount of time it took to commit the crime. It was the nature of the crime, right? Further, punishment is increased in view of the dignity or station of the victim of the crime. Kicking a dog is not as serious as kicking a man. 
And both of these pale in comparison to kicking the president or the pope, right? Um, you, say, you might say, well, should it be that way? Was that? <laughs> but I tell you, if you, if you, if you go and kick the president, uh, you'll be put away for a very long time. So don't try it. <laughs> Well, you're going to hell for all of your sins. But the rest of them go too. But the but the one that's going to really send you to hell. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I, every, any one of them, all of them will send you to hell. Now, it is true that if you did embrace Christ, then all of the rest of them would be taken care of, and so perhaps we can we can think in those terms. But every one of those sins has to be punished. Yeah, so it, it's not as though. You know, they're just funneled into one. And again, I, again, that's, that's, you know, when, when Christ died on the cross, he did not absorb the penalty for all the sins of all people everywhere in himself. People are still punished for their own sins. He bore the, he bore the wrath of God against the sins of those for whom he died. Okay? Um, so uh, so it, it's, not, it's not as though they were just reduced, okay, there's just one sin. Otherwise, we couldn't say, well, I mean, that's the same for everybody that's there. But there's going to be some who are going to be punished more severely because they're punished for their sins, for their deeds, not just for their failure to embrace Christ. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a sense in the fact that you didn't embrace Christ means that you will be punished for all your sins. If you had embraced Christ, you would be punished for none of those sins. But it's not as though those who go to hell are only punished for the one sin of rejecting Christ. They're they're punished. They're punished for all of their sins. So sin against God takes on infinite proportions, and requires infinite payment. Next objection here, hell cannot be eternal because Jesus' payment for sin was not eternal. So that's sometimes the argument. Well, Jesus died on the cross. It only took him three hours to suffer. Uh, he may, might expand it a little bit if we want to include the, you know, the, the suffering in Gethsemane or, or perhaps expand it beyond the grave. But in, in any sense, it's going to be a, an abbreviated period. I say here, Christ is an infinite being who could bear the infinite force of God's wrath in a short time. But finite people cannot bear that, and so they're obliged to suffer for infinite duration. And the penalty is equal in both instances. Um, yeah. The fact is that uh, Christ is, you know, you know, Adam was the first Adam. His one sin damned us all. And Jesus, the one act of righteousness, gave, uh, gave eternal life uh, to all for whom he died. And so it's not as though it, it, it's, 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 simply, it's simply credited in a moment uh, to our accounts, uh, his one act of righteousness. So we shouldn't think of him as having to, having to uh, suffer eternally in order uh, to pay for the sins of, uh, of a large number of people.
Third objection, payment will eventually be made. And perhaps repentance will eventually occur. Okay, so, you know, you know it, perhaps after a period of time, you're purged, you get, get in, or perhaps people, will, after they're there for a while, will finally say, okay, enough of this, I repent, and God will relent. But observation tells us that people become more and more confirmed in their sin over time. Time does not loosen sin's grip, it rather tightens it. Sinners continue to sin in hell, ever increasing their guilt. And uh, we find in 2 Peter 2 that apostates never cease from sin. Okay? So it's not as though people will get there, be dismayed, and scramble to get back. You know, oh, maybe, maybe, if, I just, maybe if I just reform, God will accept me. And they're, they're just not thinking in those terms. Okay? There, there is no idea of remediation or reform that's going through the mind of the damned. They hate God for what he did. And they always will. Okay, uh, so it's not as though uh, there's there's some sort of reformation that's possible from the damned. Another objection: Well, God is primarily good, and so eventually He'll welcome sinners into heaven. Well, we've already seen that the terms used in Scripture just simply don't allow for that. But let's add a few other things. Proverbs 29.1, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. When a wicked man dies, his expectation perishes. And unbelievers who die have no hope. Um, so it really seems to shut down all possibility uh, of some sort of a reform and a, uh, a remediation where people will be led into heaven. There just is no language that allows for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, the, the fact that he's, that he's, you know, he wants his, his brothers to avoid this place doesn't mean that he doesn't hate God. I, 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 I don't think that there's any implication that he is somehow reformed because he's there. Um, but I think he knows well enough to know that he wants to help his brothers. I don't think he's necessarily thinking, you know, they, they need to make their peace with God because God is fundamentally good, but he just doesn't want his brothers to suffer. So I, I'm, I'm not sure that that rises to the level of, of you know, uh, yeah, so making his peace with God. Well, we don't know that. I, I, yeah, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't appear as though he's relenting or repenting or, or wishing that this could be undone. He seems to be settled in his realization that he can't go back. Where whatever, whatever's happened, it's permanent, and he can't go back. But, but maybe somebody could. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Right, yeah, and never, and even even the bowing of the knee does not mean that there's remorse, right? I mean, it, you know, it, it's, it's, there's a sense in which God just pushes them down with His thumb, and they acknowledge, yeah, and they they acknowledge Him for His power and His authority and and His and His wrath, but to 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 think in terms of 
any sort of positive inclination towards God. I'm not sure that that's implied there, right? Final, final response here, and this is perhaps where as close as they, they can come to verses here. And some of you have asked, what, what verses do they appeal to? Well, here's a few of them. The Bible speaks of death and eternal destruction. So they're going to be destroyed, and destruction implies that there is an end, right? Uh, so that implies annihilation. But... The fact is, death never means annihilation in Scripture, but rather separation. So when a wicked person dies, he doesn't cease to exist, because existence is part of the image of God. Instead, he's separated from the life of God, from every manifestation of divine grace. Also, to be destroyed or ruined in Scripture does not mean the cessation of existence. In fact, oftentimes those who are most thoroughly destroyed or ruined are actually let allowed to live in order to live with the implications of their destruction. Uh, that's, that, you, know, you see this somewhat routinely in the ancient world, right? You completely ruin a person, but let them survive in, 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 their, in, 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 in their state of ruin. And uh, it's, that's, it wasn't an uncommon thing to have happened. So it doesn't necessarily mean cessation of existence, but rather irremediable devastation irreversible collapse, okay? So there really is no wiggle room here for eliminating hell or minimizing it or, or softening it so that it is anything less than eternal conscious torment. Uh, that's, uh, the scriptures are too clear on that to really uh, walk away from it. Final thoughts on that? Well, let's end on a more positive note here, then. The new heaven and the new earth. The eternal state of the elect. So what's this going to be like? Well, <laughs> there's only really a chapter given to it, and so we don't have a whole lot to go on. A little bit of chapter 21 in Revelation, and then much of chapter 22. But, uh, you know, precious little. But what little is there is precious, right? Okay. Uh, the eternal abode of the elect should not be confused with the present-day structures, such as our present earth, or even the third heaven, the current abode of God. Scripture tells us that these will be replaced. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, because the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And 2 Peter describes that. The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. I'll let you uh, physicists try and explain that one. The earth and its works will be burned up. The heavens will be destroyed by burning and elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So all of that's going to be destroyed, but we are going to be sort of removed from it and observe this. Uh, and, uh, and God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth probably in a moment like he did uh, with the initial creation. So it won't take time. Uh, it'll just be a matter of God speaking it into existence. The purpose of this recreation seems to be the erasure of all vestiges of sin and the curse. 
So symbols of judgment and destruction will be removed. In fact, there will be no more sea. Uh, you know, sometimes creationists have suggested that perhaps there wasn't as much standing water on the earth uh, before the flood as afterward. Uh, I'm not sure that that necessarily holds up, but the sea has always been used in Scripture of, of a place of, of uncertainty and danger. Um, and so whatever water is there is like glass, right? It's going to be a great ice rink. Right, yeah. So, so it's, it's going to be the crystal, it's going to be like crystal. It's going to be, it's going to be a, um, the, the, uh, the, the destructiveness of the sea will be, uh, its teeth will be taken out of it. The new order will have a capital as well. A new city will descend from heaven and be of immense proportions. In fact, it's 1,500 miles in width, length, and height. Perhaps a cube, probably a pyramid in its shape. Uh, and of stunning beauty. So it's an enormous place. Uh, sometimes we wonder, how is everybody going to fit? Well, uh, with, with structures like this, uh, we can fit quite a number of people. So what's it going to be like? Well, the city is going to be ruled by God. Christ will have delivered up the kingdom to his Father, and God will be all in all. Remember, we saw that in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ will hand over the kingdom, the millennial kingdom on this earth, to the God and Father, and when, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. So the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Okay, so they will be here in this kingdom. Many of the millennial structures, uh, and when I say structures, not, not physical structures, not buildings, but, but the, uh, the arrangements, the authority structures, apparently will remain in place in the new order. God and the Lamb will have a throne. His bondservants will reign forever. Nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So, uh, whereas uh, in the millennium, uh, nations will stream to the light of Israel. Now the nations will be coming and bringing their glory to this grand city. The fact that the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles are distinguished here in Revelation 21 may imply also that there's a continued distinction between these peoples of God, Israel, and the church. Although uh, we've got probably too little to go on to establish that with certainty. And it explains here why the kingdom can be described in Scripture as eternal when its millennial phase only lasts a thousand years. It doesn't seem like eternal if it's only a thousand years, but we find that probably much of the structuring of the millennial kingdom will survive into the eternal state, and I think that gives us a good reason uh, for thinking of the, uh, the covenant promises as of eternal duration. So what will it be like? Well, all vestiges of the curse will be eliminated. Revelation 22, there will be no longer any curse. It goes on, death and pain and sorrow will be removed and replaced by unending happiness. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain because these things are passed away. And the centerpiece of our experience will be fellowship with God. Tabernacle of God will be among men. This will be the climax. God will be with his people. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be among them. 
They will serve him, see his face eternally. And then 14 songs appear in the book of Revelation implying that worship and praise will be unending and dominant activities of the new order. Don't imagine that we're just going to be sitting there singing continuously. Uh, but I, it does appear that worship, uh, godly worship, will dominate uh, the scene. Um, there's a lot of speculation as to what else we might do. I mean, is it possible that, uh, uh, you know, with the new heavens and the new earth, that there will be some sort of a radical expansion? We'll, you know, populate new planets? I, I, it's hard to know. Um, but uh, it does, it, I, I don't think we're just going to sit around and sing all the time. I think the, uh, the dominion mandate for the earth seems to suggest that there will be work to do. Uh, that there will still be an industry that is ongoing. What, what form it will take, I don't know. Uh, but d d I, I, again, I, I don't know what it's going to be like. I've got too little to, data to go on. Uh, but I don't think there's anything in Revelation 21 and 22 that limit us to just sitting around singing continuously, and that's all we do. Um, I think we'll enjoy singing and, and do it well and, uh, and uh, in a, in a God-honoring way. But I don't know that that's going to be all that we do. So, any thoughts, comments? Two, two things. It seems that strongly suggests to me that, that the New Jerusalem will be a, attached to Earth and make an eternal state. Number one, the four directions: north, south, east, and west. And then, and then uh, number two, the nation streaming to it. So it. It seems that there there is that attachment to the earth. Oh, and also, uh, you know, did I say no more seas? But anyway, the thing is, is that that suggests okay, no more sea. Then then that suggests that there's earth, but earth has no more sea. Yeah, it's hard to know because we we actually have the crystal sea <laughs> and no more sea together. So. It, we sort of have to harmonize that. I, I'm, not, I'm not thinking that we're just not going to have any water, but, but certainly the, the violence of, a, of an untamed ocean will be gone. The crystals, crystal sea, now, is, is, okay, are we talking about Revelation 5, that, that worship? And yeah. Okay, the, the, I, I, I guess I'm thinking more of the, of the river coming out from the throne. Right. Uh, that's that's the, the body of water that is that possible that the crystal sea is a figurative? Possi possibly or something that's connected with the present order. Oh. Um, but uh, but I, I I don't think we're we're saying there's no bodies of water, but the idea of a violent uh, untamed sea I think is something that goes away. Perhaps, perhaps. And perhaps it will be smaller in size. It's hard to know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think this might be sort of unique. When the uh, Libra Pass dies today, do we go to Upper Sheol? Is that what he said? No. That, remember, that was the Old Testament saints did, but we go directly to be with Christ. Well, it, you, you see Christ. You be with Christ. Um, uh, so something I was reading last night, it's the, 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 the top of third heaven, and it said that's where the 
Right. Wherever Christ manifests himself is, is where saints will, will be uh, because they will see his face eternally. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, again, again, sometimes we, we have gaps in what we know, but they will be with Christ. That's, that's the promise. So wherever Christ manifests himself most visibly seems to be where we will be. We typically call that heaven. But, uh, okay. Any other questions on the whole of what we talked about this semester? Uh, got 10 minutes left here to. I'm sorry, and this last week, the uh, thing is, is uh, you probably covered this, but the thing is, is you, we, in your, your review, you talked about other minor judgments, and mm -hmm. the one that kind of puzzles me is the, uh, the sheep and the goats at the end of the tribulation, the uh -huh. beginning, at, at the second advent, and, and uh, that's just a judgment, those that are, are judged die physically and just go to hell and then they'll and then and then they they will be judged at the great white throne. Correct. Yeah, they they'll yeah. Again, we don't we don't have as much data as we want, but they seem to they seem to be put to death there only to rise at the millennium at after the millennium. And then those who are believers, the sheep among the nations will will survive and they're and will populate the millennial earth. Okay. I was just thinking of too that um, when Adam was here, he was put in the garden to work it, till it, whatever. So yeah, I'm imagining it is going to be more than just a, a big choir. Yeah, I, I, I some kind of. Yeah, I do think it's it's going to be sort of a a, a reset. Uh, to to the Edenic kinds of conditions, and I, I I'm sort of forced to the idea that we're going to be doing the kinds of things that Adam and his family should have been doing. Although I again I don't have chapter and verse, but but at least we have that pattern and to be appealed to. Right. We are causing global warming, <laughs> but it's because of our sin. Yeah. But it's not because I drive a car. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we we are no doubt doing serious injury to our planet, but we have the promise of the uh, of the Noahic covenant that until 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 the end, heaven and earth, uh, seed time and harvest, day and night, summer and winter won't cease. So we're not going to damage the earth that badly. Uh, although there's 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 no doubt that. <laughs> We've done all sorts of serious damage to the earth, but the earth seems to be resilient because God has made it that way. Yeah, you just look at our bodies, how many times we cut ourselves and get stitches or whatever. And... But they catch up with you. <laughs> okay. Well, good. Well, thank you for a good class, and, uh, and hope it was helpful.